Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Internet. It's Monday, November 2nd, and you're listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 356. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and we've got a bit of an odd one here uh, for you today. Uh, We are going to be discussing a massive feature on the history, well, not the history of uh, Sierra, the game company, but the history of Sierra's sudden death uh, as it was bought out by a coupon company. Uh, that that was apparently committing massive financial fraud and then destroyed in the ensuing fallout when uh, that sort of scheme began to implode. And the person who told that story for us and who spent months researching it uh, is with us today, freelance writer Duncan Fife. Hi. Uh, So, Duncan, tell me a little bit about what drew you to this story. Um, Because I think... Until you sort of pitched me on it, I had forgotten that there was this aspect of the end of Sierra, that it was actually corporate crime uh, that caused the company to fall apart. Because I think, you know, if you think of games history as it unfolds across the pages of magazines from that era, it's easy to think, well, Sierra Adventure Games started being a little more, they were much more expensive. The quality was maybe questionable in places. Adventure games were no longer what they were. Sierra was probably just old-fashioned and just couldn't keep up with the times. But that's manifestly not really the story of what happens here. This is not This is not a case of, uh, you know, the logic of the market or preferences uh, calling time on, on a company. Uh, but instead, something very different. Yeah, and in fact, if Sierra had got a few more years um i think it would have evolved and it was already starting to evolve into into a very different company that or rather a company that made very different games like i I, the talent at sierra the the designers i think were more attached to adventure games than the leadership ever was um and that goes back to ken williams who founded the company um, you know, like I think by the end, this is 99, 2000, you know, they were, they had just signed the rights to publish Half-Life. They were um, working on this big Babylon 5 game that had the, the whole cast and crew of the TV series um, working on that. That was never released. Um, they were beginning to produce what eventually became uh, the Middle Earth online game. So it would have been... But obviously none of this happened, and it's not what you think about when you think about Sierra. You think about the Avenger games that it produced in the 80s and 90s, those King's Quest, Leisure Suit Larry, which define the company. Um, as to how it got on my radar, there is a very simple answer to that, which is it's the third article about Sierra that I've written for you guys for Vice. 
The last one was uh, about Leisure Suit Larry. It was about this... Urban legend is not the right term because it actually happened. But there were... In the late 80s, um, there was reports of uh, pirated copies of Leisure Suit Larry uh, disseminating across machines and workplaces all across the world and having, you know, this profound effect that brought down supposedly... Uh, hospital administrations and banks because of people playing uh, a pirated copy of Leisure Suit Larry at work. Um, and for that piece, I spoke to Al Lowe, who is the uh, creator of Leisure Suit Larry. Um, and we were talking about this story and he told me, you know, the story you should actually write is this one about uh, the death of Sierra at the hands of CUC International, which was the company that acquired it. Um, and I, I was like, yeah, okay, sure. I, I, I will... Let me finish my writing, writing my virus piece. Um, but the more that I thought about it and the more that I looked into it, like he is right. <laughs> this is, it is a really interesting story. Uh, in part, it's a story about what seems to inevitably happen to any company the size of Sierra that enters capitalism. Um, it gets bigger and then it gets eaten. Um, so in that sense, the story of and the sort of downfall of Sierra is not surprising. What is surprising about it is that the particular company that ate Sierra uh, was at within two years revealed to be the largest perpetrator of accounting fraud in the history of the United States at that time. I think it was censored passed by Enron and Bernie Madoff. Madoff. And if it wasn't... Um, the exposure of that that killed Sierra, like it was certainly the fatal blow. Yeah, I think this was one of the things that I found really fascinating with the uh, story as well, which was that this wasn't just a case of okay, the you know the company that acquired them was committing fraud. They committed an infamous fraud, and yeah, one of the things that really struck me here is that in some ways you can sort of. This is real. Like I like the way that these things can become sort of a microcosm that we can relate to. Like what is happening more broadly in the economic history of the the modern era. Uh, and Sierra is a company that I think a lot of us do have a relationship with. A lot of us remember their games. Uh, remember you know playing them growing up, and remember suddenly they're not being a Sierra. And the fact that it turns out that. It is brought down by the first of what turns into a series of like era defining scandals where um, we see this pattern repeated. You know, the accounting, the, 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 the accounts the companies are keeping are not in good faith and they are intentionally using like accounting tools to obfuscate expenditures, losses, uh, and basically appear to be something they are not. And the only reason this scandal is probably not remembered more is because Enron imploded a few years later uh, at an even larger magnitude. And that sets us up for, uh, you know, the financial collapse of 2008, which in some ways you could also, you, you could probably also see an arc toward, um, 
the way these frauds have to evolve as the earlier versions of them fail, right? Like Enron, it was external company accounts that are exposed to be particularly like egregious, right? This is why Arthur Anderson uh, goes under. And then by 2008, um, you know, arguably there was no fraud. It was just we created financial instruments that nobody could, nobody had the wherewithal to properly assess. And and so you sort of look at this as. Here's a company that we understand. We understand what their business is. And they get pulled into a trend in corporate corporate America where, by design, you're not meant to understand what is happening in the business. You are not meant to understand what a company does. Yeah, and the, the same kind of thing is at the heart of how this company, CUC International, was able to acquire Sierra as, let's say, the the 2008 crash, which is that company, CUC, was able to pay uh, $1 billion, just over $1 billion, although in stocks, so or not really, for Sierra, and buy the company, uh, Sierra being then at the peak of its power and empire. So could buy it for a billion dollars, didn't have a billion dollars, Never had a billion dollars was also be able was also able to buy, pay another billion dollars for this other company Davidson, um, which owned Blizzard, uh, and it was it, it seems weird in a way that you can complete those purchases as a company with money that you do not have at a fundamental level, but that's the system that is how how money works at any sort of scale. Well, and I think this was, so let's get into the piece a little bit. Cause I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the story. Um, there's, there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great details. I, I enjoy your work so much. I like the fact that Roberta Williams from the jump kind of didn't like, uh, the head of, of CUC, uh, Walter Forbes just had just one of those things where you just don't get on with somebody. Um, and didn't like the way he made the initial approach to her when no one was around to sort of float the idea of yeah. selling Sierra. Yeah, Roberta Williams, who like is not the founder of Sierra, but basically defined the company as people know it um, through games like King's Quest and the fact that Sierra makes games at all is Roberta's influence. Um, so there's a guy called Walter Forbes, uh, if, you, if you go to Wikipedia now, it says he, Walter Forbes, is an American criminal. Um, he was a venture capitalist, the CEO of this company, CUC International, uh, which does sound like Cuck International, if you read it that way. Um, and he was on the board of Sierra, along with a bunch of other venture capitalists, for his business expertise, basically. Um, and there's one day that Roberta Williams remembers where, uh, Sierra's chugging along. It's doing fine. Um, she's at a hotel with some other board members getting ready for dinner later. Uh, it's in Paris and Walter Forbes jogs in off the street and he's sweaty and he says, I'm going to go up and have a shower. But before I do that, Robert, Roberta, can I have a word with you? And she says, sure. Um, and he pulls her aside. She she has a stake in the in the company, but uh, she's not. She's a contractor actually. She's not a salaried employee. She's not uh, the chief executive. That is her husband, Ken Williams. Um, but he pulls her aside and says, "Hey, can I ask you? Did 
do you and Ken ever think about selling the company? Um, and she says, no, which is, which is the truth, uh, at, at least at that time to her. And Walter sort of like nods sagely and is still sweating um, in the lobby and says, you know, well, if you did, if you did want to sell it, how, how much would, um, how much would you want? And Roberta is interesting. She describes herself as a very intuitive, naturally intuitive person who gets feelings about things. And she felt in that moment like she, she felt like, why are you talking? I, I am a game developer. I don't run the company. Uh, I might, might have Ken's ear, but like, I don't make these decisions. And she thought, oh, wait, maybe that is the point. Maybe I am being pulled aside by this guy who she thinks, thought at the time was this hotshot, like Wall Street guy, very flashy, very kind of supercilious who she think and Sierra at the time was headquartered in this rural um, town in California, Oakhurst, which the only reason it was there was that they had originally wanted to be close to Roberta's parents. I think it was not a good place or like a cosmopolitan place to put a major game studio. So she's starting to realize all of this. She's getting the sense that he's expecting her to be the weak link like she will reveal the private conversations she has had with Ken um, about what the company is really worth and what their price is. And so she feeling the, the import of the moment, she thinks about what she's going to say and she says, Oh, the price is a lot and leaves it there. And he just goes, huh? And then that's it. And she, he returns, he leaves it, drops it and returns to Ken about a year or so later in fact, with a lot of money, offering a lot of money. Yeah, and I think I love that you focus on that moment where he where he seeks out Roberta because I do think it's one of those things that it becomes menacing in retrospect. Like I think in the moment, you know, is this how business is done? I don't know. Sometimes, uh, but there is something inappropriate about asking the person who's not on the corporate board to be like, give me a ballpark figure for what an acquisition would cost. Like that's not a conversation that should be had uh, with somebody who's not, you know, authorized to sort of give that number or like know those, know those books, know, know those stats like off the top of their head. Uh, and so it is kind of an odd move and it does seem like it's not like a bit of illicit reconnaissance uh, trying to, you know, get, uh, you know, get a number you can use in negotiation later. Uh, but maybe it's yeah. nothing, but everything about Walter after that does suggest it was probably not nothing. It probably wasn't. I mean, also the sense I get is that it was hard to tell sometimes because he wasn't, or at least f- did not try to present himself as a very hands-on methodical operator. He sort of cultivated this uh, idea of himself. Like he's the visionary. He's the big picture guy. He's the guy who is barefoot in his office with his feet on the desk. He's got these great ideas about how the internet, this is 94 or so that he's, he's talking to Roberta, how the internet is going to change everything and he's going to be at the forefront of it and he's going to revolutionize everything. Um, so I think he did like having big ideas like acquiring Sierra as well as other software companies was a big idea um, one that caught for him and he followed up on um, 
so I think, yeah, probably, I think Roberta is probably right. I think that is what he was doing. I also get the sense that he was a guy who, whose attention could, uh, be fickle. Yeah. Uh, he, like this certainly as you sort of unpack the, what is CUC? It's a business that makes no real sense. There's no cohesion to it. It's expansions, uh, don't appear to betray any real strategy, uh, to, to sort of, you know, if, if, corporations uh when they make acquisitions are looking for synergies or efficiencies that is not what cuc appears to be doing they appear to be going to places where hey we have no core competency in this so we might as well just dive right in and acquire this company uh i think but but one of the things i i really like in this like here as is part of the story is that when he shows up with a lot of money i think that there's two things as you as you already alluded to it's not a lot of money it is a lot of stock, eval- like valuated at a certain level um, that you know adds up to a lot of money. But it is not, in fact, a cash offer. It is a very generous offer for, uh, you know, for, for basically a, a stock swap uh, to to give him control of Sierra. And the other part of this is that Ken Williams is almost alone in the inner circle of Sierra leadership. As being someone who is down to do this deal. Um, at this point, Sierra is a mature enough company that there is a leadership cadre of real executives. This is not this is not a startup phase uh, software company where this is not id in 1993 or, or whatever, right? Where it's just a bunch of friends who are, who are you know, uh, riding this wave. Sierra is now a, now a real actual company. And even there among the like season hands uh the season business hands um there's not a lot of enthusiasm for this deal you've got roberta's vibe uh just about walter in general but the sierra leadership don't like the deal but they feel like they can't actually say no to it which i which was another dynamic of the story that i found really fascinating and important for understanding why the economy <laughs> why business is so fucked up in so many ways yeah, and I think it's the question of it's certainly a question of the story is was it possible to say no to this offer once it was made? Um and you know, it's easy to tell someone no when it's not your it's not the the decision you have to make, but yeah, no one really wanted to do it except Ken and the shareholders, but that was enough. Um and I think in addition to wanting to do it, who there was, there's also this question of, do they have a choice? So like the, the offer from Walter is to exchange Sierra stock, each piece of Sierra stock, each share rather with a share of C stock, which is valued uh, much more highly. So effectively the value, the investment that shareholders have in Sierra would become an investment in CUC, uh, it, it would turn $20 for them into $30. Um, and if Ken Williams as the president and CEO of Sierra at that time doesn't take that deal or rather doesn't recommend that deal, he has to have a really good reason because on paper, this is exactly what all the shareholders got into this for. 
like they're not in there to sort of cultivate the artistic growth of Sierra as a company and sort of like carefully pick its projects and um, and whatnot. They're there to get a return on investment. And this is what is supposed to happen. Like they are supposed to find ways in which they had been doing through acquiring other software companies of their own to increase their investment, increase the value of their portfolio. And so what is the reason one could possibly have for turning this offer down? Because there's a lot that we know about CUC now. At the time, I don't think there was any reasonable way to know any of it. You know, uh, a, a big red flag would be that Walter Forbes and CUC would not let uh, Sierra or any of the other companies that was interested in acquiring look at its books. Like that's maybe a red flag, but on the other hand, it can point to the fact that its accounts have all been audited by Ernst & Young, which is one of the big four auditing companies, and it's glowing. It's great. There is there is officially nothing wrong in this, uh, with this company, and not only is there nothing wrong, it's reporting incredible earnings. It's, you know, this kind of, has this kind of scrappy startup feel, but like Walter Forbes is very well regarded on Wall Street. Um, and so... The reasons why someone might not want to do it, you know, there's a lot of this among Ken's executive leadership, there is some distrust of Walter Forbes in particular, who seems a little too good to be true. CUC seems a little good to be true. There's some aversion to the idea just because things were working really well. Like Roberta, for instance, apart from the vibe she got from Forbes, was had like a dream gig at Sierra in a way. She got tons of money to make the game she wanted to make and she was, you know, rewarded for them accordingly. Like, why change that? And a lot of other people thought, well, you know, why risk kind of diluting, getting Sierra diluted in this much larger organization, um, especially an organization that has no experience in software. Like CUC... I guess I should back up. Like the CUC's business model is, I guess it's kind of like Groupon or something. Like that is you, exactly where my, my mind went when you outlined the the business that CUC was in, and it did sort of collapse time for me yet again. In yeah. that, like nothing is new, right? Like to a degree, the yeah. scams of the uh, modern app era are the scams of the nineties as well of the dot com era. Yeah, you um, do you follow, follow you follow Formula One, right? Yeah. Like, do you remember the th- it was like just last year that one of the teams, Haas, gets sponsored by a fictitious energy drink and like name the, the t- like they give naming rights and then the name of an energy drink that does not exist is on the cars. Uh, yeah, this was this was one of the more bizarre things that unfolded uh, at during F1 last year. And it is it is one of those things um that is sort of a reflection of the way like capital flows become, become invisible in some ways. Uh, there was a lot of investigation over at um, Jalopnik, uh, I, I want to say, about did this company actually exist? Because there's a lot of evidence that they didn't. But then you would see cans out in the wild. So the energy drink was re- real. I've had it. Oh. Um, but the question was always... But is it real and that it has any intention of becoming a mass market beverage, right? Like it's very easy to create some like 
you can very easily create a Potemkin company and have product demos. But that doesn't necessarily mean that anything you say about the company or its long-term plans is real. Or that just because I can give you a can of this beverage, I have any plan or wherewithal to create a product line that will be like on the scale of a Coke or Pepsi product or even a Red Bull product. Yeah. Um, but you just, but you, it's so hard to know that uh, with the way economics are now, uh, you know, where companies can be registered, the obligations they have, who is generating their books, et cetera. And CEC does, did present a vision. Like it had a vision that it pitched to Ken. So like its business model was basically you would pay CUC a membership fee to be a CUC member and you'd get like a discount uh, card in the mail that gets you like a range of discounts on all sorts of consumer goods. And hopefully that's worth what you paid to pay to be a member. Uh, and it wanted to get into online shopping. They had a, uh, basically like a proto Amazon that they had acquired called net market. And they thought Walter for thought like, you know, the future is future of commerce is all online. Let's start moving there. Uh, let's get the experience that Sierra has with software. I don't, I mean, like I don't fully understand this business plan really, but in addition to creating a software unit on, in our coupon company, uh, they can also, these developers can also help out with the, uh, like the storefront, like the online was, storefront. Was this around the time? Like, does this stem from the fact that they renamed the company Sierra Online? Like, is this because Ken, like, via branding, kind of intimated that like Sierra is an internet-oriented company, even though the product line to date really hadn't indicated that at all? So no, it had always been online. Um, it was on. It was called online before it was called Sierra, actually, which was just. Um, because Ken was a programmer and did like telecommunication stuff before they made games. Uh, but the synergy, sorry to say synergy where it does come in is that Ken was, Ken Williams was also, uh, like a quote unquote visionary about the internet. Like he was a big proselytizer and he had just a few years before all this is happening, invested a ton of money in building something called the Sierra network, which is was um like a mmo slash games platform slash social network where you again uh you would pay to be an annual member um and you would uh sign on to the sierra network and it was like uh had a graphical ui and there would be proprietary games there that you could play and like special sierra content and there's also this social dimension so apart from being able to play multiplayer games with people around the world, you could also sort of connect and talk. And he was so sure, like, that's the future, which it was. Which it is. Yeah. It is. Like, Game Pass, like, he basically sees Game Pass. Yes. Uh, slash, like, Battle.net. And they're, yeah. like, also thinking, like, well, if we get sponsors, you sort of have the broad appeal of Fortnite and the the way you can sort of host events within that. And so they build this, they, they, they do make this, uh, and it's around like 1990, 1991. So it runs on modems and they, uh, I think buy out a, a, a decrepit wild west warehouse, wild west restaurant, sorry, in Oakhurst as their server farm. Um, and they like make it and it's running, but the problem is 
it costs them because they have no experience doing this kind of thing. Like no one has experience doing this kind of thing. It costs a ridiculous amount of to, of money to maintain. Um, and nobody is ready for it. Like people are not ready for, for Fortnite slash Battle.net in, in 1991. And so they lose like a fair amount of money on this each year, which I think the, the hope is that Sierra can weather that. And eventually that, and you know, the losses, there's going to be a loss on that every year, but eventually the payoff on that is going to be so big. And Sierra will be the one who has, who had like the first gaming slash social network thing. Um, but they cut bait and Ken didn't want to cut bait on it, but he was like pushed, you know, the, they sold it off to AT&T who eventually shuttered it after a while. Um, and so Ken was receptive when Walter Forbes comes to talk to him about, you know, there everyone's still thinking about retail, but like just in just a few years, everything is going to be online and we're going to have an online marketplace. You could help with that. You could be a part of that. Um, and I think that's one of the, things that makes joining CUC attractive to him is that, you know, it's a, it's Walter shares the same kind of foresight and is willing. So he thinks and is able to sink billions of dollars into, uh, keeping, you know, a, a, a loss leading online marketplace afloat until the world catches up and is ready for it. Um, one other thing I should say, a part, a, a part of this deal that, that, uh, that is pitched to Ken is, and one of the things that makes it so appealing is Walter Forbes says, you know, we're not just getting into software with Sierra. We're also going to acquire this educational developer, Davidson, which by the way, owns Blizzard Entertainment. Also, we're going to buy LucasArts. We're also going to buy Broderbund, who puts out Mist and, and Prince of Persia and Carmen San Diego. And we're going to combine all these companies, all four of these companies, um, because another thing Walter predicts is, you know, it's the early 90s now, actually mid 90s, this is 1996. The, the computer game market is pretty fractured, but it's going to con start consolidating really quickly. So, you're going, you're going to see fewer and fewer smaller companies. They're going to get all get acquired. And then by the end of this, in a decade or so, there's going to be a few big companies running the video game and computer market. Let's get in on that now with all the premier like PC game developers. And Ken Williams, you can be a part of that too. Like You can be in charge of your company and all of your competitors who are like vertically aligned with a proto Amazon uh, and backed by billions of dollars. Like it is a very appealing offer to a certain kind of person. So the offer ends up uh, going through and, you know, interesting, interestingly enough, one of the things that, um, again, like the nature of it not being a cash offer means that the deal begins to go south very quickly because, the thing that makes this risky and I think is probably the if they wanted to fight this offer and say, like, the board shouldn't take this. It is because the nature of that offer was, yes, they were being given a generous in-kind transfer of shares uh, that, frankly, put a premium on Sierra 
uh, shares. But that was all contingent on CUC stock holding value. Um, and you can't just unload all your stock and like cash out immediately. I mean, you can, but in general, uh, I don't know how this deal was structured. Oftentimes you can't do that immediately. Uh, like that's, that's not part of a deal. You can't immediately cash out. Uh, but the other thing is that cashing out tends to move the market. And so like generally you can't immediately liquidate stock without destroying the value uh, of stock. So it's it's one of those things where for this to work, for this thing to make sense over time, CUC stock needs to hold value and continue to grow, um, you know, continuous trajectory basically. And and as you you know as you sort of outline, immediately the merger itself causes the price to dip, um, which is normal for for things like this. But what's less normal is that now CUC has this whole basket of companies together. And there are more executives getting into the mix. And there's now more people sort of looking through the books of like, what is this business? What like now that now like Forbes has brought this cast of characters and this cast of companies into the CUC fold um, and formed. Uh, this is around when Sendent gets formed, right? Yeah. So CUC, about a year after it acquires Sierra and Davidson, it doesn't acquire Broadbrand or Lucas. Um, but it starts getting interested in another company, which is a similar kind of, I don't know, like shell shell game. It's a company called HFS, which is run by like this very serious corporate raider type. And it's basically what it does. It, it, what it did was buy up a lot of naming rights to hotel chains like uh, Days Inn and Ramada and would license those out. So every you know, every day's in, in the country and the world has to buy the rights from this company. Um, CUC gets interested in that, uh, is interested in acquiring it because to date it's acquired, it only ever acquires companies. It doesn't merge, but this other company, HFS is large enough and valuable enough in its own, but distinct ways that it says we don't have to we're not small enough to be acquired by you. Actually, let's merge and you know combine our forces, and we will be a juggernaut. Um, and then they form this new company called Sendent. And it's around this time where now it's not just Forbes and his inner circle who were able to sort of look at what is under the hood of this company. Um, yeah, and in particular, it's the HFS team, uh, Silverman, that are that are beginning to get increasingly antsy about like. The weirdness you alluded to earlier about CUC not having basic financial data on call um, begins to start to seem alarming to some of their their new partners. And talk us through like what begins to crawl out from under the rocks as they are turned over. Yeah. So when these two companies merge, and this is ultimate, this is what ultimately proves to be the undoing of Walter Forbes and CUC is. When they merge, um, one of the things that Walter Forbes puts in the merger agreement uh, is he wants his company, CUC, to maintain what he calls financial reporting autonomy, which basically means no one else gets to look at the data. No one else gets to look at the books, even though this other they're going to merge with this other company whose CEO, Henry Silverman, is going to become the boss 
he can't look at the data. The boss cannot look at the data of what is effectively a subsidiary. No one is allowed to look at the books. If you want it, you have to go through Walter Forbes' lieutenants, which is wild as like an idea, but they like Henry Silverman and HFS go for it because they are just thinking about how much money can be made from this deal. Um, and so Henry Silverman dutifully makes this request to the financial team at CUC, he says, you know, we've got, in a couple of months, we have to make our first annual report to the Securities and Exchange Commission with our earnings, our respective earnings from the past year. Can you give me that data, please? And they say, sure. Uh, and then months go by and they are not doing anything. This is this is weird. Like, I, I have a lot of thoughts about what exactly the game plan is here. It's basically they are all looking at their books and just procrastinating maybe because the books do not paint a good picture and eventually like they procrastinate so long that it starts to become urgent they have to file with the sec so silverman sends in his own guys and supposedly what they find is um or what they are told is cuc's guys show them the books and there's a lot of like very interesting proposals in there for how to declare income and they say we want you to find help us find a way creatively to do this um and the kinds of things that they're talking about is for instance cuc had said uh the merger is probably going to cost us 150 million dollars or something in that range things like uh severance for uh employees who are no longer needed under the new structure so there's we've put aside 150 million dollars to deal with one-off contingency costs that uh, arise from making this very big merger. Um, the next year it says, okay, that 150 million we put aside, we, uh, don't, we didn't spend that. So this year we want to declare that we made it. Um, we, it's $150 million in new income. Um, effectively, they're counting it twice. They're saying yeah. that they made that twice. Um, and then uh, the more they start to look into this, the more there's just a lot of games like that. Like for instance, um, CUC is estimating, you know, they have however many million subscribers to their coupon membership. Um, but that number is inflated because, or that number is rather not a true reflection of value because the number includes everyone who is on a free trial for the first year of CUC membership and is not paying the $40 a year or whatever it is. And in fact, uh, but they're declaring it as if everyone's the free, the pe people who have a free trial are paying and they've got millions in revenue coming in from that. Um, so they're starting to look into the books and getting concerned and they realize CUC has declared I mean, this this all mounts and mounts. The bottom line is CUC basically made up 60% of its revenue. 60% of its revenue that it declared just did not exist. And now that there are these other guys in the room, like Henry and Silverman and Senate would have, and HFS would have like fashioned themselves the adults in the room, um, you have people starting to come forward from the CUC side and say, hey, I was told to, to for instance, 
make uh, like seven pages of fictitious income entries, like in the millions of dollars um, by CUC managers. Uh, like that, there's no basis for any of that. And in fact, like they were telling me, like I, I wrote down five, three million. They said like make it five million and then put like a random number of pennies at the end, so it doesn't look suspicious. Like that's what was going on, and what Henry Silverman, as the chief executive of Sendent, realizes he has to do is they have reported to the SEC. Um, all this, all this, uh, they, they reported that everything was fine, basically. And now they have to say, wait a second, we have to restate our earnings. We have to restate CUC's earnings for the past year. And then they realize, oh, and we also have to do that for the past like three years, because this has been going on for a long time. And effectively, this company is not worth nearly as much as everyone thinks it is. And the reason for that is because they were lying uh, for years. And what that the effect that that immediately has is the stock price of this company, CUC, now Ascendant, just plummets overnight. And as you were alluding to before, what that means is the investment that, you know, going all the way back, Sierra's shareholders had in Sierra has gone, has just fallen through the floor because they weren't paid in cash. They were paid in CUC shares, now Ascendant shares, and those are worth nothing. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that um, it's surprising how long a scheme like this can run. But the rubber meets the road when for this to continue happening, more people needed to basically sign on to committing fraud. Uh, yeah. Because those like if you tell if you if you make these earning statements that is that is legally binding and so now if you you know if the HFS team also said like yep these books look good they are also now putting themselves in the barrel uh for SEC violations and yeah. so like the call has to come from inside the house or more people run the risk of going to jail uh over this and so it's an interesting moment of like I suppose in the nature of these things, eventually one's reach exceeds one gra one's grasp. That eventually there will be a point where people are not going to say, "Yeah, fuck it, I'll let let's kite these books for another year and see if we can like turn the fundamentals of the company around, uh, so that it never so that we never have to cop to the fact that these revenue numbers are are bogus." Yeah, um, and it seems weird in retrospect that they wouldn't have anticipated that. But on the other hand, like it had all been working for them so far. Yeah, and I think I think a thing that is maybe hard to project back to now. Um, one, we were all very young during this era, uh, but but two, I think from the advantage of twenty twenty, uh, having gone through, having seen a series of scandals like this, having gone through the oh eight oh nine crisis it's very easy to be cynical and skeptical of the way corporate accounting, uh, the way the stock market works. It like, there's a degree of skepticism. I think that our generation has of these things and of the people who run these things uh, that I don't think existed in the nineties. Uh, I think in, I think in the nineties, not only was the oversight obviously a little more lax than it is right now um, in part because standards had been allowed like had been allowed to slip so far but i think also particularly around tech 
there was this notion that you just let the operators operate. Like this is the creative engine of capitalism and these new technologies and these new markets that are springing into being. Part of that is driven by we don't look too hard at these things. We don't need to understand them. We don't need to sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, examine, examine their teeth. Uh, we can just we can just let them go. Um, and I, I think it's very hard to look back at the 90s and understand, like, how people were so how people ended up being so taken in by people uh, like Walter Forbes, by companies like CUC. Uh, it's harder to understand why the dot-com bubble seemed plausible to people at the time, because in 2020, all of this seems absurd and on its face. And of course you'd be skeptical. Yeah. And I think it's easy to be tough on Ken Williams for being taken in on taken in by this, but there's also like Henry Silverman at, at HFS and also Bob Davidson, who was the chief executive of Davidson Associates, the educational developer, were both much more ruthless, just unapologetically tough businessmen than Ken Williams. And they like were caught up in this too. Like when when Henry Silverman is is told, Henry Silverman, who has a reputation as like a business genius, is is told, will you merge your company with this other one who's like books you are not allowed to look at. He thinks that's weird. He does think that's weird, but on the other hand, he's like, there's so much money at stake. Like, I, we got it. We got it. And Davidson, Bob Davidson, like there are a lot of w- different ways to look at the picture that CUC was presenting. Like one of my favorite details from this is when Sierra is being courted by CUC, Davidson is also being courted by CUC and they invite him out to the CUC headquarters. And so he goes to visit just like to, to do a walk around of the office and he's, he goes there and what really strikes him is this is a company that, you know, makes hundreds of million dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars a year is going to make him a multimillionaire if they complete this purchase. Um, and he walks around and there's like a dozen people in the office and that's who works at CUC, a, like a dozen people. And instead of finding that like odd, he thinks, wow, they must work really hard. Like what, this is this new entrepreneurial startup culture that I'm hearing so much about. And I really respect hard work. I'm a hard worker. I get these guys. We're all on the same page. Yeah, that detail just floored me. The degree to which you see obvious evidence of like, something is wrong with this picture and you just create like make it fit the narrative of like, damn, what a, what an innovative and entrepreneurial entrepreneurial com- uh, culture that this must be. Uh, it, it's a bit like in those scenes where, um, you know, in any number of suspense movies where you go back to the, to the place where you, you met the powerful businessmen before and it's all cleared out or something. Right. And like all that's left is shitty office furniture. And you realize like, Oh, this was, this was all a false front. It's like something out of like the game or uh, the Spanish prisoner. And that is, that is basically what Davidson sees and he still can't see it because, this is the way business is going. It's massive revenues, but no employees. And to a degree, that's still something like business is chasing, right? Like, wouldn't it be great if you had massive income, but the company generating it basically didn't employ anybody? Yeah. 
I mean, it's ahead of its. It, it was ahead of a time, its time in a way. Like it is, it was a form of disruption. I guess you could say. Like it had found the way. It had found this way to make a ton of money by doing very by having like such low overheads. Um, although it didn't. So, uh, we should take a quick break here and uh, let you buy some products from some absolutely real and respectable <laughs> companies uh, that. Um, or uh, possibly uh, some some governments as well. Uh, what I, like we've got some ads, uh, and I'm sure they're fine. So we'll take a break here. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Uh, Duncan, I think one of the things that I found really poignant in this article is the degree, the the speed at which the wheels came off for uh, the Williamses and the almost, the way they were both basically humiliated you know, in their own company, in their own corporate home, in some ways, fairly swiftly. Um, both of them have a pretty brutal uh, moment of realization where, where they realize what the new normal is going to be, where they now stand uh, within, within this company. Uh, can you talk us through that? And uh, in particular, you know, the experience of Roberta Williams, sort of an iconic game designer from that period, now being treated as a fairly unimportant employee. Yeah. They're, they're two different experiences, but they are connected. I think for context to know what happens with Ken. So he, he eventually is, so he, he has pitched once Brodebund and Lucas are out of the picture and all that. He's told it's going to be you and Davidson. Um, you guys, are, your companies are going to be combined into CUC software. Excuse me. Um, and Ken, one of Ken, Ken's natural questions is, okay, who's in charge of that? Um, and what Walter says, well, what what do you want, effectively? And Ken says, okay, you know, Davidson's a smart guy. I'm a smart guy. We all have smart people. What I think makes sense is if we we don't have any one person in charge, but we have a kind of board I'm one vote, Bob Davidson is one vote, and then we have like a CUC guy who hopefully we don't have tie, like ties to break, but he's there to break the ties. Um, and that meant what that meant was Sierra could, Ken could advocate for Sierra within the new structure. He'd be able to assert um, and defend, you know, his people. And Walter Forbes, Forbes says, sure, that sounds really good. Uh, what he doesn't know is 
Walter Forbes is having the same conversation with Davidson. Davidson saying, how do you propose to run this consolidated unit? Walter Forbes says, well, what do you want? And Davidson says, well, the only way I would do it is if I'm in charge of everything, uh, including Sierra. Ken is subservient, subservient to me. Sierra is subservient to me. I am the chief executive. And Walter Forbes says, okay, that sounds good to me. And he, by all accounts, he doesn't really tell either of these guys what he has promised the other. <laughs> this part I have sympathy with, by the yeah, way. Yeah, for Being sure. Like, oh shit, I told these two people incompatible things. Uh, and, they'll work it out. Yeah, yeah. And that's, he leaves them to get on with it. And so Ken goes into CUC as a CUC employee, expecting to uh, run this board, to meet at this board. And Davidson's like, there's no board. I am your boss. Uh, and Ken struggles with that. If, in part because the, the, those two guys clash, there is a personality clash, but also like, it's just not what he was promised. He's not Bob Davidson's employee. Uh, and But Bob Davidson is just adamant. He's crystal clear. This is the way it is. And we're going to start getting rid of a lot of Sierra's Salesforce and executives and replace them with my guys because I, I back my guys to the hilt. And Ken, who had gone in there expecting and anticipating to compromise and sort of be conciliatory and do the best thing for the company being CUC is sort of like loses is, is, as you say, like kind of humiliated for being the nice guy. Um, we're trying to be like trying to make everyone happy. And so they're, Ken is saying to Walter Forbes, like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, what, what's going on? And Walter Forbes and his guys are sort of like, ah, yeah, you guys try and figure it out. And so Ken is trying to come up with all these solutions, creative solutions for how he and Bob Davidson can work together and still respect the other and, and get the best, make the best out of the situation. And Davidson is just, no, I am in charge and that's the way it is. Um, and eventually, like, Ken is just boxed out because... I mean, basically, CUC is very happy with Davidson in charge because he runs a successful business. Again, he has Blizzard, which everyone is starting to see the real value that is inherent in that company. Uh, They want to mollify Ken because they're worried if they push him out, other designers at Sierra will follow. Uh, But they also don't want to alienate Davidson. So they say, eventually, they, they have no answers for Ken, and Ken says, well, what if I, I will go over and work? I will leave Sierra, the company I founded, because I can't do anything. I will go over and work at NetMarket, the Amazon.com uh, equivalent. And I'll try and find a way to be useful there. So he goes off and does that, having like fully failed to win a power struggle with Davidson that he wasn't expecting. And all this becomes really important for the experience that Roberta Williams is about to have. So she has uh, mostly been, like almost entirely uh, at Sierra, been doing King's Quest games. Like one King's Quest after another, and they're the, like, those are the prize jewel. Those are like of Sierra. Um, Not only are they like the top sellers, they always have to be like, it's like chicken and egg thing kind of because they have to be the most expensive games because they have to showcase the newest technology. Consequently, they are the biggest hit makers for, for they are the biggest hits for Sierra because they're the flashiest. They have the best production value. They're the most expensive. And Roberta Williams is in charge of all of them. 
Um, and she is, by the time the CUC acquisition happens, she is working uh, in the very early stages on the eighth uh, King's Quest game. Uh, it's called Mask of Eternity, which is kind of now considered like the black sheep a little bit. And the thing she wants to do with that game, like the the technical revolution, the technical step forward she wants to take with that game is to make it all 3D. It's like real, real-time real 3D, like very, absolutely like what you would see these days. Like it's Tomb Raider, it's Uncharted, uh, 3D camera, over-the-shoulder camera, uh, but it's, a, it's an adventure game. It's a full-on adventure game translated to 3D where they had all really been, you know, pre-rendered 2D. She wants to see, like, can we make an adventure game in this new mode of uh, production and experience? And she's really excited about that uh, because it's something new uh, and she likes doing new, new stuff. So when... She she has these early concepts and she takes them over to CUC. Um, and this is a very different environment for her because for the first time, Ken is not her boss and there is a structure above where Ken was and is now in charge of her projects. And it's a bunch of people she has no relationship with really. And I don't like, I don't mean this to be dismissive, but like Roberta had enjoyed to a, a pretty substantial degree, like preferential treatment because she was like the crown, she was the star of Sierra and she got like compensated accordingly. One of the things she could do, for instance, was um, have the development teams on King's Quest come to her house. Instead of going to her office, they would come to Roberta's house and they would work on King's Quest. They would make King's Quest in her house. Um, but she doesn't want to do that this time. She thinks this is 3d is such a technical challenge. I should start coming in to the office. Uh, and so she does. Um, and this is all like the development team. It's all still like Sierra people, by the way, it's not like CUC hires a bunch of other developers and assigns them right. to Roberta Williams, King's Quest. So it's people like, maybe she doesn't know, but like the Sierra employees and what she's, what she is finding out like she starts to look at the game that they have built based on her design documents. And she's like, wait, what are you doing? This isn't the game I designed. I designed a very traditional, apart from the 3d adventure game. And then there are all these elements in here. There's, there's combat, there's like RPG style skill leveling with items and experience points and all these things that she had not wanted to do that she had not even considered. And she's saying, well, why is, why, why are you putting this in there? And they say in so many ways, like, oh, don't worry about it. This is the future. Um, and as she struggles with this and she never really gets a, a clear answer on where this is coming from, but the idea seems to be they want, CUC wants to basically leverage King's Quest into a more profitable direction. I think they're looking at things like Diablo, which Blizzard is making, and thinking King's Quest adventure games are being are getting a bit stale. These need to become a bit more sophisticated and fashionable. And Roberta doesn't want this, uh, but she is not listened to. And so she starts 
from her office, like deleting changes that they have made, like things that make it more RPG like, and then they start putting things back in and taking her changes out. And eventually she more or less just walks off the project and she's frustrated and the game isn't what she it recognizes and she feels powerless because like, and, and one of the reasons the Ken Williams thing is important is that in the past, like she had had experiences where people would try going over her head to Ken and saying like, do we really have to do this? And Ken would say, well, Roberta is in charge and that's that. And she doesn't have, Ken is not in power anymore. He has lost his power struggle. So Roberta is on her own and kind of, losing control in the same way that her husband did. Um, and so I th- you, you spoke with her about yes. this. Yeah. So one of the questions that I had sort of reading through this passage is like, there may not have been people known particularly well to her, but it strikes me as a very painful thing to like have, they weren't like outsiders. These were, these were Sierra people who were basically kind of like, yeah, Roberta. Okay. That's great. Uh, we're just going to, we hear what you're saying. We're just going to do our own thing here. Um, but I'm kind of surprised at the speed at which it happens like, do you feel like that there'd already been some detachment from the active, from like the, the developing, the development line, uh, that existed at Sierra? I'm like this, this part I found kind of, fascinating just the speed at which suddenly Roberta Williams didn't have uh, the capacity to get people to go along with her creative vision. Yeah. This, the impression that I get is that the marketing team that was constituted under CUC later seen had a lot of power and, you know, where they don't have, where there is, where there no longer is the sort of historical importance that a Roberta Williams or a Ken Williams had to the company, there is, they have less power as a result. And there are so many layers of new management and vision. Um, And now, and, and, you know, people say a lot of stuff about Ken, but generally Ken Williams did entrust designers with their visions, even when he didn't agree with them. Like uh, Jane Jensen's Gabriel Knight is an example of a game he did not like, or just thought would not work, but let her do because she was like part of the family. And that sort of collegiality or uh, respect for designers was not present anymore. I think also the mood shifted or the impetus um, behind game production shifted to be much simpler and market led, like make games that look like hits uh, where you can't do that, make them very cheaply and fast. Um, like this is not in the piece because I couldn't fit it in, but like Elo of Leisure Suit Larry at the same time that all this Roberto Williams stuff is happening is trying very hard to make a new Leisure Suit Larry game. And they, and he's told, okay, you can do that. But first we want you to do like, 
like reskin this uh, casino card game that we already produce with Leisure Suit Larry characters. Um, and he says, like, oh, I don't want to do that. And they say, we'll do it anyway. And so they put out this casino spinoff of Leisure Suit Larry that he's not happy with. And he says, okay, I did that for you. Like, that's the one I did for you. Now do I get to make, like, a real Leisure Suit Larry adventure game? And they say, uh, yeah, sure. Like, get started on that and just, like, check in. And he says, well, can we sign a contract? Because he's also a contractor. And they say, yeah, we'll get around to that. Um, and eventually they, they don't get around to it. And eventually he just, like, Elo is not fired or does not quit Sierra. He just stops coming to work. Uh, <laughs> Um, I spoke also like to the producer of Mask of Eternity, the King's Quest game, Mark Siebert, who his sense was, because he was sort of responsible for implementing the the vision, whosoever it was for that game. And a lot of it, according to him, came from upper management, from marketing. Um, he He also said like, Sierra under its new leadership and software development elsewhere was increasingly less excited about internal development teams. Um, that was not as interesting as um, either staffing up to make games and then shedding the staff or just publishing games, which are all much more cost effective than employing designers or contracting designers who at Sierra had very good like royal royalty rates on their games. Like all that stuff is much less attractive to a business that is much more uh, straightforward in how it looks at profit. So as they, you know, as they collectively realize they're, they're completely marginalized and um, Ken's, Transfer over to NetMarket uh, is that's the, that's the name, right? NetMarket. Yeah, yeah. It still exists, uh, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, I think you can buy like a like a motorcycle on it. Now I need to look this up. But uh, he he's over there, and that is also not turning into a center of power for him. He is not really like in any kind of spotlight. Um, and so it's it's kind of clear that in terms of this being a not only financially lucrative but also like a path for the development of their respective careers and ambitions, this has been a complete bust. Uh, this is when the Williamses begin to not just have seller's remorse, uh, but also begin to feel like they just need to maybe uh, like get out of this entire company. Yeah, and. All of this is happening around the same time that CUC is being uh, merged with Sendent and Sendent is starting to look at CUC's books more closely. And Ken has a really bad experience with Market. Basically, he's told, uh, go away for a few months, come up with some ideas to make this the make this website like the the online shopping destination and so he does that and he like works on it and he's got like a lot of ideas to do that and like he goes to pitch walter forbes and his lieutenants this and by all accounts they just kind of blow him off you know they shit on it they're not interested and he's kind of furious um and pretty soon after that 
Ken and Roberta Williams make a plan to sell off all the stock that they have, as much as they can anyway, in CUC. And I think it's now Ascendant. So they cash out uh, as much as they can, which is not everything, but it's a lot. Uh, you know, like we're talking like millions and millions of dollars. Um, and Ken resigns. Uh, Roberta is just a con- contractor, um, so she doesn't have to resign, but she sort of st- keeps working on this Ken's Quest game. But basically, they're gone. They're gone and they cashed out. And then a few months later, like the Ascendant makes its restatement of earnings, which is the thing that collapses the stock price and it never, never recovers. And this is, you know, as you relate, this is devastating to a lot of folks at Sierra who'd had stock in the old company, who had become uh, paper rich uh, under, you know, after after the acquisition. Um but because Sendent was continuing to show like growth trends, people felt like, well, you've got, you know, you've got the golden ticket. You, why would you cash out now? Um, you, you indicate that like Roberta even told people like they knew from Sierra, like that in their view, it didn't seem like a good place to be anymore. Uh, it was, it was time to not just get out of the company, but get out of, uh, get out of the stock. Uh, but a lot of people didn't do that. And I think one of the things I found really um, interesting, sad, uh, the Williamses came out of this all right, like bruised feelings, um, but very wealthy, uh, on the, on the other side of this, uh, they came out of it, you know, relatively unscathed, but a lot of the people who were at Sierra with them, who had stock in the company, um, didn't come out of that at all uh, very well and saw a lot of their assets basically turned into nothing. And I think one of the things I was curious about, and I think we talked about this briefly during editing, to a degree you could lay a lot of this at the feet of, well, not the Williamses, specifically Ken. You could say, like, you know, ultimately the the person who led all of us over at Sierra into bed with uh, CUC was Ken. Um, and in the end, like financially, Ken comes through all right, but all the people were brought into this. Um, you know, you, you describe, you know, people who'd use these assets as collateral for houses, etc. Like suddenly you have a lot of like financial devastation inflate, uh, inflicted, but I couldn't tell like, was there any resentment at the like divergent fortunes of like what you as a senior designer at Sierra might like might have seen happen to you versus like how the Williams came out of it? I, I couldn't like it was it was it was striking to me like I could see seeds there for people to be like pissed at Ken to this day, but I didn't necessarily pick up on a lot of that from the piece. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, the answer is n- no. I mean, at least no one I spoke to uh demonstrated that resentment and i can think of like a couple of reasons why that might be the case um you know bearing in mind that i didn't speak to absolutely everybody yeah but like for one thing like ken and roberta williams were very wealthy by selling their stocks when they did they were made more more wealthy but they like they went from millionaires to millionaires like yeah they didn't um 
transform themselves based on cashing out when they did. And they didn't become at, at, at that juncture did not become like rich at the exp- at the expense of everyone else suddenly becoming a lot poorer on paper. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if, if it looked like a material change in their circumstances from the outside, although like I'm sure it was. Um, the other thing is like, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know how much people blame Ken for selling to CUC or at least are sympathetic to him because his position was very difficult. Um, like he, his, if he had said, no, let's not sell the company um, and had failed to give a compelling reason for that, which he certainly would have failed to do that. Um, you know, not knowing what we know now, like he probably would have been fired by the board. He would have lost his job. Um, at the same time, like he did want to sell. I don't know if he wanted to sell to CUC specifically. Like, I think he would have quite liked Sierra to have been bought by a Microsoft or Disney or, you know, an entertainment company, not a coupon company. But I think he was, I don't think, yeah, he was, he was never really going to make the argument that, um, that they shouldn't sell absent of, uh, some very good reasons why they shouldn't. But yeah, it like, it is certainly fortuitous for the Williamses that they cashed out when they did, but I don't know. Like I, I mean, I, yeah, all I can say is nobody told me they were pissed at Ken. They, people are yeah. pissed at Ken for other things, but <laughs> le- less so that. Yeah. Also like, I mean, he genuinely didn't know, you know, I hate well, to right. No, I mean, it's not like he was a, he was not a participant in this. Yeah. Uh, and I, that is a, that is a crucial difference. It's just in the end, like, you know, the story opens on Roberta Williams getting a vibe. And in the end, they're kind of saved by perhaps too late. They finally do just listen to that vibe yeah. um, and, and hit eject. Um, one of the, one of the things that, you know, you, you, we've sort of talked around here. Reading this piece, I think it's very easy to look at Ken as a bit of a, um, well, this is probably one of the, in his career, this is probably one of the more painful stories uh, that, yeah. that there that there is. And so this is probably where we see Ken at his most vulnerable, um, you know, exhibiting some of his weakest judgment, uh, his greatest naivete. Um, and so it's very easy to look at a piece like this and sort of feel like, man, Ken was a little fish who wanted to be a big fish and just got eaten by a shark. But hearing about like the things he wanted to do and the degree to which he was envisioning, like how the internet's going to transform the economy, et cetera. It does kind of sound like Ken and to a degree Forbes himself, but you know, to, to what degree was, was Ken also seeing himself reflected in Forbes uh, is sort of a notion you sort of end the piece on uh, that, that Walter is very good at reflecting back to Ken uh, the things that Ken wanted to see. And when we, when we think about like what Ken's ambitions were for the company, they weren't that wild Uh, in terms of where he saw things going. 
I think one of the other things that I see being, being very frustrating here is that the plan he envisioned, the arc of where he saw commerce going and the way that a company could position itself if it had these assets and this kind of like foresight, you could seize a commanding position in sort of the new online economy. And if there's, I don't want to call this tragic because Ken, there's no tragedy in, you know, Ken not getting to be Jeff Bezos and yes, just being instead a everyday millionaire. Uh, but there is something I, I do find a little bit poignant in that he's kind of treated like a rube and a schmuck by the people at Send It and CUC. But in terms of overall vision for like, where is all this headed? Where, like, what does it make sense for this company to try to be? Ken's actually, it sounds like on the money for for a lot of this like he's he's you know fairly early on he knows what's going to happen in the digital economy and he just never gets a position to act on it yeah it's interesting like i i i fully believe that like i think had he been left to run sierra um you know unfettered by corporate ownership like he was seeing trends accurately he was reacting to them he was he was sure that as for as much as like adventure games connected with Sierra's audience more than anything else he, they did. He was also very aware, like those were not going to, you know, tastes were changing, you know, shooters were becoming very popular uh, and were much cheaper to make. Um, Everything was moving online. Um, There were a lot of areas in which Sierra did, there were a lot. There were a lot of audiences that Sierra was not fulfilling, and it could fulfill all those things. Um, and he wanted it to. Like he wanted to evolve Sierra with the times um, to reflect. Like I think he would have, you know, a Ken Williams run Sierra in the two thousands. I think could have made zero adventure games, or adventure games that looked very much like you know, an Uncharted, and then the way that an Uncharted is an adventure game. Like, I think he, yeah, he, he saw what was coming and was not emotionally attached to the product in a way that would, uh, you know, he, he was not, he was not, he was a tech guy. He was not a, like an artistic guy. He didn't play games even really, but he saw the way things were going. He sometimes saw things um, before you know, he see, he saw trends emerging, and he would position his company accordingly, and enjoyed great success at that. I think one of the frustrations about the specific position that he was in is that, you know, with something like the Sierra Network, which was just like so impractically ahead of his time, is that he had enough foresight and money to be able to make that but not enough money to be able to sustain that to the point where he would become, you know, like a certified genius off the back, off the back of having made that. Um, And he was also like the vision that Walter Forbes pitched him was also right. Like all these companies did become acquired by Activision and electronic arts and, and Microsoft eventually, uh, it probably, from a business perspective, was not a bad idea to start get you know getting in on that around the mid nineties and um, being the first to a lot of those things. And yet, I think one of the other things I that I certainly feel from from this piece is that it's funny to me that 
it almost feels like Ken wanted to be two incompatible things. He wanted to be the dreamer and the visionary who sees like I see where things are going. I'm going to position the company. I'm going to position myself where you know where I can take most advantage and sort of bring this reality into fruition. But he also wanted to be the serious businessman. The first photo uh, that runs in the article is one that uh, you found from the old like CUC corporate brochure uh, with Ken and the rest of the CUC management there in that. Uh, ballroom and Ken looking very out of place already. Even that scene, he's, he's he's a big man who's aware that he's big and is trying not to loom over that picture. Um, and you got the rest of these polished MBA types uh, in the room, and there's Ken, yeah. and he badly wants to be in that room. He's he's someone who badly wants to be uh, a corporate board type to be a big shot businessman. Yeah, and it, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I was I was just thinking, but those, those two things are often incompatible. That to a degree, like the visionary can't also be the person who is. Um, there's this a movie I, a movie I adore um, is this movie Margin Call. Um, if you've ever seen it, mm. um, and there's a scene where Jeremy Irons, who is the CEO of this massive investment bank, on the eve of the 08 financial collapse. Uh, basically is flown in at midnight to make the call about like whether they're going to try to dump all these uh, toxic assets on the market. But he gives this in this scene, he explains like uh, he asks like, why am I here? He, he asks uh, a junior employee, uh, do you care to know why I'm in this chair with you all? Uh, why I earn the big bucks? And his answer is, I'm here for one reason and one reason alone. I'm here to guess what the music might do a week, a month, a year from now. That's it. And to a degree, that is that is what corporate officers are often there to do. They're not paid to be visionaries. They're made to hopefully make take simple decisions and make good ones. Simple propositions and make good ones. And to some extent, like the portrait that emerges here is that if anyone has the capacity in the story at Sierra, it seems like it's Roberta that mm. she is the person who looks at these situations and for whatever reason, just has a good instinct for like, this is the right move. This is, this makes sense. This does not, this is a good offer. This is not there's. And one of the, the ironies I find in this piece is that Ken badly wants to do it all. He wants to be, he wants to be Thomas Edison, uh, you know, the the inventor, and he wants to be, uh, you know, a modern corporate exec. And, you know, those things are not, those things don't go together. And it's kind of his undoing that he try, tries to make them go together. Yeah, I think, so Ken is a couple of things. Ken is a really talented programmer. Like he was really good, and like Sierra works in, and as much as like Sierra worked in the early days because of Roberta's creative vision, it also needed him there to be able to execute it, execute on it, and make cutting edge games before anyone else could. Like, and he's really interested in tech, like, um, really cares about it, and that's an interesting contrast to guys like Walter Forbes and Henry Silverman who are effective businessmen to various degrees, but don't give a shit about the things that their company does. They're a means to an end. So Ken is a really good programmer who also wants to be really rich and has like a kind of 
storybook dream of what success means and what being a successful businessman means. And I think wanted everything that comes with being the chief executive officer of a public company who can retire in his 40s. Like, and things would happen to Sierra, like they took early venture capital capital money in like 1982 when this was just starting to happen. And, you know, they took a, like, I think it's just like a million dollars in exchange for like someone having a seat on the board. And like, he doesn't really understand venture capital. Roberta doesn't understand it. And uh, like, after finding out more about it, doesn't like it. But he feels like this is something that serious businesses do. Like they get money like this. They're supposed to. And in turn, like, years down the line, they're supposed to be acquired by other companies. Like all this stuff is supposed to happen. And can, can status and wealth are rising at the same time. And it's interesting. There's this like kind of, you know, we talked earlier about people seeing what they want to see, like reading the tea leaves in their own way. There's this part, there's this part where like, he feels like CUC is, the place he wants to be as a businessman. Like these are his guys. This is his idea of like, he wants to be a multi-million million dollar millionaire chief executive who flies on private planes and had, takes meetings with Bill Gates and has expensive lunches. Like he just wants, he believes very much in that idea and that's what he wants. And like, it's like he gets the keys to the kingdom at CUC, which is this billion dollar company with all these like very, well-regarded, powerful people involved. And he goes to this first board meeting was like, they've given him a seat at the table and he gets there. He's like, now what is business? Uh, and they talk about in this board meeting, like the annual CUC board meeting, they talk about golf, their golf games for the entirety of the meeting. And then what if Forbes says like, how's business? And they say, yeah, it's good. And that's the meeting. And he like is stunned by that. It's like, that's not what business is. Like, you're out, supposed to be like out there making deals. And unfortunately, like actually that is kind of what business looks like at that point, at that level, that is what a chief executive looks like. It's not, you know, the sort of uh, Pollyanna-ish, like dutiful, head down, hardworking businessman at a point, like it takes, it takes a turn. And I don't like, he was outmatched, I think by, guys who saw that reality a lot more easily and were able to work within that system. Um, and he, like he, he, for him, like this was the dream. This was what he was working up to all along and it just fell about apart. So, so brutally. Um, yeah. To a degree, like Ken is somebody who exists, who comes from the real economy where people have business and produce things. And like, there's, profit and loss spreadsheets and it all makes sense and it has to make sense and yeah at, at a certain tier in the corporate world um there isn't a lot of care for these kinds of details both because the altitude at which you're existing is so far removed from the profit and loss of any one line of business it's very hard to see but two and i think this is kind of you know crucial to understanding where things are at with you know the global economy at that level, these are people who fundamentally don't need to sweat the details very much because ultimately, once you have a certain like critical mass of capital, 
you will continue to business will continue to be good. You can redeploy that capital elsewhere and take positions elsewhere very easily. You know, you have that aside, like Silverman is furious when he realizes the degree to which uh, this is, you know, taking massive amounts of money out of his pocket, uh, being swept up in this fraud. But we're talking about like a guy who can eat a hundred million dollar haircut uh, based on, you know, sort of speculative offers and such. But ultimately, it's not going to touch him in that way. Um, that's that, you know, this is this, this is not his his one shot. This is not his one. This is not his baby in the way it was for for Ken, uh, who Sierra was his price of his ticket of admission into this world. And, you know, he couldn't thrive there. Um, I wanted to ask. You know, as we as we turn toward the the theme of Sierra has been, you know, you've written three pieces about Sierra for us. And they're, they're very different pieces, I think, in, in, in some ways. I find them interesting. Um, you know, first you wrote about their bizarre partnership with Daryl Gates and the Police Quest series. And then this odd, the the odd afterlife of Leisure Suit Larry as a vector for early cyber attacks. Uh, and and finally come here to like the the end of Sierra as a company the the sort of uh, collapse of its its dreams and I kind of there's there's two questions I have uh, one is personal like why are you why are you drawn to Sierra in particular as a, as a place to uh, to study as a as a company whose history you you, you really uh, want to get into detailing, and two, why? On one level, Sierra is one of several software companies that didn't make the jump out of the nineties uh, and continue to thrive. Why is Sierra interesting um, to us today in a way that a lot of other companies are not? So as far as I go, like, I mean, I played, a simple answer is I played Sierra games growing up. They were like the first games of any kind that I played. And I think they, you know, I, I also would later play LucasArts games and I thought those were better. Like, I, I think those were slash are better adventure games, but there's still something about about Sierra's games that were formative for me. I mean, there is there were more of them. There's a lot to hold on to. And they were very clever as a company about how they marketed the product line, how they presented the sort of Sierra family as uh, a place that was making games for every type of person and would kind of uh, evolve and age as you did. And you felt like, at least for like this moment in the early 90s, a span of time, like there would always be a Space Quest and a Leisure Suit Larry, like as you got older. Um, obviously did not end up being true, but like they were very good at selling that kind of vibe in a way that I think was sticky for a lot of people. Um, another thing is, like, I also remember in high school, which is was after Sierra had largely uh, floundered. Um, have you read, have you read Hackers, the book by Stephen Levy? 
Uh, no, I've not. So that has a chapter. It's kind of all about the hackers and software developers of the early 1980s. And there's like this very revealing chapter about the first few, few years of um, Sierra and a lot about Ken Williams and, and a little bit about Roberta as well. And I remember reading that just... It, it, it was so, in in some ways, like incongruous with the portrait of Sierra that I and everyone else was sold, but like, was it was it was formative for me in the same way, in telling in showing me how through journalism and reporting you can create access to a world that is a real world, but exists beyond the perception of what you are supposed to be told um, and what you are being told. And that always, those chapters on Sierra, which I've reread so many times, like, especially when writing these pieces for Sierra, like that was, I, that has stuck in my brain as a kind of template for me as to, what is possible when writing a, an article about a company like this? The, I mean, another thing is I, it's fun and rewarding to write about a company that is, you know, that ceased to exist 20 years ago or 10 years ago, because people will actually talk about it now. Like I don't have, um, the access or the expertise to write this kind of story about a company that exists today and is, you know, relevant today. Like I can't write the equivalent of the story about CD project or whomever. There are a lot of reasons why you can't do that. And I think even when you do get like the exposés of businesses, business practice and, you know, development horror stories at contemporary companies, uh, the only way that can be done is through a lot of anonymous sourcing. Um, and what hackers revealed to me as someone who read it, like at an age for it to be foundational is these are people and they're people who are like, have very messy lives and make a lot of mistakes and have neuroses that inform how they do business. Um, and that stuff is there to be accessed if you can. Um, and it reveals more about the world of the games that you thought you knew. Like, I think the Daryl Gates piece came out of a memory that I had from that book about this um, this turn that Ken Williams taken, takes in the early days. He starts out as kind of like a, a, a hippie-ish hacker like probably like a conservative guy, but like kind of anti-authoritarian in that he doesn't like having a boss. He doesn't like being told what to do. He likes the idea of like playing a bit fast and loose with IP and copyright. And what happens is Atari takes him to court over like what they think is a, a copyright infringement of Pac-Man and Ciro wins, but he's so shaken by it because he came so close to being um, destroyed and also, he kind of sympathizes with Atari. He's like, oh, I wouldn't want people to do this 
with my company. I wouldn't want people to play around with my IP now that I'm starting to get, get successful. Like, I think in many ways he is that cliche of the guy who becomes a Republican when he has a business and a lot of money at stake and can see the financial benefits to being a conservative-minded guy. And so he had gone from this guy who, like, has wild parties and drugs in the office and, like, people are having sex in the office. And then within a few years, he's like, let's get a cop in here. Like, let's get middle management. Let's get executives from, like, who sell like farm seed from local from the Oakhurst local store and let's get like a cop to give a you know present a moralistic cops storybook vision of America in our games and that's the product we'll sell and by the way I like that we're doing this um so there's a there's a real metamorphosis that takes place in him I think that um I, I dove I, I delved into more with the Daryl Gates thing, which I was interested. I had always been interested in how that came to pass and like I am able to find out about things like that now uh, in a way that I never was before. Um, as for Sierra, and, uh, do you want no, I was just gonna say and I, and I do think like there's like that description, Ken Williams remains a human-sized figure. In these stories. And it's interesting, like in so many ways, Sierra follows this arc of the tech boom, uh, the culture. There's a lot of overlap between the culture of Sierra and the culture of Silicon Valley or the Silicon Prairie uh, of this time. But one of the differences is that like Ken Williams is not going to be immortalized the way like uh, the early Microsoft generation is immortalized or the way Steve Jobs has become this um revered figure um whose you know sayings have taken on the quality of like cones uh you know with, with within the tech world but i think ken williams is not that different from these characters right like he's just somebody whose business line didn't take over the world but in terms of like what makes the guy tick the the metamorphoses that he undergoes they're very familiar to the changes we see among the people who shaped a lot of the information age. Yeah, I think fully. I think he is, that legacy is undone by bad luck in some cases and bad timing. Um, and like later on, just bad calls. Like one of the things that happens, the job offer he gets after leaving Sierra is, do you want to get in the ground floor of literal Amazon? Like, do you want to help Jeff Bezos, like, figure out how to catalog books? And he thinks about that. And he's like, no, I want to do, like, a talk radio business. Um, like, I want to do talk radio on the internet. Which is, like, he was kind of, like, you know, and you can see, like, look into the future. Like, he kind of was thinking about podcasting. Like, he was thinking about things that would become very popular. But, and he, so he was not wrong, I think, to follow those instincts but you know like had he chosen to work with jeff bezos who reached out to him personally and like wanted him to do it like it might be a different story like i certainly think he had the mentality for it um 
you were saying something a moment ago before I interrupted. Uh, was there anyone to circle back to uh, regarding Sierra? Uh, yeah, Sierra as a topic more generally. Yeah, you. I mean, you asked like, why is Sierra relevant today? Like, I think as much as you can see, like the two D adventure game as a complete product of its time. Um, that does not exist in, with the same sort of market capitalization that it does today. It does, it's not at the mainstream of, of the video game market. There is and remains a lot about Sierra that I think is very, is very ahead of its time. And that is, for instance, like, I am hard pressed to come up with a company, a video game company that um, was a mainstream, like a mainstream hit maker that had as many women in positions of like creative director, lead designer, like woman led projects who get, have their names on the box. And it's like, it's not just Roberta Williams. There's a lot of like, female talent and that's in that studio in its history and it's certainly that certainly was not the case at LucasArts it wasn't the case at pretty much anywhere at the time and it's it's like still very rare there were things that it was doing because of the specific alchemy between Roberta and Ken like her creative vision and his technical ability and the sort of power and influence that they were able to wield as a consequence of getting very successful very young that they are i think they are a more interesting company than is remembered uh and part of that is that they were that they would have changed and they wouldn't like they would not have been this boutique adventure game studio forever had things gone differently like in part, like they're just, they came close to being an empire and it didn't work out, but also like they were in a lot of ways, a very creative, friendly studio that gave people a lot of artistic freedom, even when like Ken Williams didn't like the games that were being made. Like they were putting out like a lot of very diverse and creative product within you know within reason like it, i'm not i'm not saying it was super woke as a company it wasn't like there is a lot of kind of regressive uh and anti-progressive messaging in like a police quest game for instance but still um it was riskier i think than people gave it credit for or more experimental um and i think that it is remembered for things like King's Quest and Gabriel Knight and these artifacts of the nineties. It's not unfair because those are its crowning achievements, but it's also not a realistic depiction. I think of the life of the studio or the vision that Ken or even Roberta had for it. All right, and I think we will leave it there. I encourage everyone to go and read this piece and go back and read the piece about Daryl Gates' collaboration with Sierra and uh, Leisure Suit Larry's 
questionable importance to uh, a particular type of uh, particular brand of cyber attack uh, and sort of the mythology that grew up around that. And also what Leisure Suit Larry's legacy turned out to be. Um, they're interesting pieces. Uh, they're great work by, by Duncan here. And also I do think they sketch out some really interesting intersections of video game history with, I guess what I'll imperfectly call the history of the real world uh, here as well. Um, that will do it for this week's show. You can keep up with uh, Waypoint by heading to waypoint.vice.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube. Yes, we have YouTube videos now, uh, at least at least fairly recently from uh, the um, from the stream we did for Save Point this year. Uh, so you can check out a bunch of those. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Duncan, where can people keep up with you? Uh, Duncan Fife on Twitter, uh, which I don't really use anymore. So maybe DuncanFife.net, my old-fashioned website. Awesome. Uh, our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. When we're at waypoint.zone slash Bowen. Uh, that'll do it for this week. We'll be back later this week with, if everything goes according to plan, a discussion of our impressions of the new generation of consoles on the next Waypoint Radio. Until then, especially following this episode, fuck capitalism, go home. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.